So we've been talking again in the larger series of All In, right? And we're going to shift that series out to, we've been, we've been looking a lot at John the Baptist, and we've been doing sort of a study on his life as an example of being All In, and we're going to conclude that piece. But the larger umbrella of All In continues all the way through to Easter. So we're going to shift and turn our focus towards Jesus, right? And how he was a model of being all in for us when he went to the cross. And ultimately, when he rose again, he will be the example of being all in. But for now, I want to finish with John. I don't want to assume that everybody has either been here or that you have a familiarity with the scriptures so that you would know a lot about John the Baptist and who he was. But I also don't want to go back and, and just relook at everything. But I do need to summarize then sort of where we've been and set the table for where we want to go. John, as you know, was the one who was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one to introduce Messiah. He had had a tremendously impactful ministry, but uh, there was a certain point where after he had decided to declare that Jesus, and it was a surprise even to him, that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one, where John wasn't exactly sure you know, what he was supposed to do next. That was pretty clear. And there was a period there where the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John, who's known as the Baptist because he baptized people under repentance in water, right? Under repentance. That there was a period there where John's ministry and Jesus's ministry were kind of running parallel. But then something happened. John was arrested. He was arrested by King Herod, in part because Herod had been provoked by his wife Herodias, who was offended by the things that John was saying about their marriage. And John was saying it wasn't right in God's eyes, and there's reasons for that, and we'll see that in a moment. Well, John was put into a prison cell. We talked about this. You can actually see the ruins of where he was still today. If you were to go to Jordan, there's a, there's a mountain. There was a palace built on top of that mountain called Machaerus. It was built by Herod. It looks over the Dead Sea. Do you know the Dead Sea? It's in between the Jordan and Israel. It, it's also the, that water is the lowest a body of water on earth. And John was up there confined in a prison cell. It seemed that initially he didn't know how long he was going to be there, but it, the months passed, and it, it could have even been up to a year by the time we get to what we're at, where we're at here. John, the man of open space, free range, man of the wilderness, man accustomed to going where he wanted, when he wanted, a man in the prime of his life, was now all of a sudden contained in a cell. And it, the, the air was stale, and it was hot, and he had no freedom. And it's hard enough to lose our freedom, but for a person who's accustomed to so much space to be confined, it must have been a particularly cruel development for his life. We forget that. We forget his humanity. And although he was a great man of God and had been a prophet of the Lord, as time went on, he began to wonder about certain things, one of which was Jesus, ironically, because he was hearing reports of Jesus's ministry that were so different than what he had expected. I think the picture of John is that he's kind of getting a little depressed. He's losing his confidence in God. He's not sure anymore, it seems, as if Jesus was the Messiah. He wonders if maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I didn't get it right. And so as he has these conversations with his disciples, he still had followers who were allowed to come and see him, and they would tell him news about the ministry of Jesus. And what he heard, when John heard it, it didn't seem like what he would do, right? They were very different. And so there was this moment where John says to his, his followers, who are evidently allowed to have these conversations with John, look, I can't go. I would love, I need you to go and ask Jesus a question. Just in case I didn't get it right, I need you to ask him, is he the one, the Messiah, that I, I said he was? 
can you do that? Go do that. And so we're told that a contingent of John's followers went to go see Jesus ministering. And they were obviously, they were met by Jesus' disciples. And when they said, we have a question for Jesus from John. He has a question that he needs Jesus to answer. Jesus basically said, I'm not interested in having that conversation right now. Have them wait. And Jesus continued on teaching and ministering. He healed people. He says the blind eyes were opened. There was a lot of things happening. And John's disciples were watching it all. We're told that after Jesus was done, they came to Jesus and they said, look, John wants to know, are you the one? He, he just wants to double check that he got it right. Jesus said, well, this is what I need you to tell John. And there was a huge group of people all listening to this. They heard the disciples of John ask about John and Jesus, is, and Jesus from John's perspective. And then they heard Jesus say this, you go and tell John everything that you've seen and all that you've heard. And then you need to tell him, blessed is the one who is not offended of me. And it's a marvelous statement. It's almost as if Jesus is saying in front of everybody, John, you have been magnificent. And I know you're hurting and I know you're discouraged and you're a little confused, but I need you to hold the line and stay the course. I, I, all things are as they should be. And then after, after, he says, you go tell John that. Blessed are the unoffended of me. And then after they left, Jesus turns to the crowd and he says this, just in case, it's as if he said, just in case any of you are wondering about how I think about John, just in case on the basis of what you just heard, you think that somehow I think less of John because he needed to double check things about me. Let me tell you this about John. That's where we pick up right here. You can follow along your handout. If you have your Bible, your Bible app, let's just go for this in Luke 7. This is the set. That was the setting for what we're about to look at. It says, when John's messengers had gone, look at verse 24, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he says, let me tell you about John. Let me tell you about when you, when, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? I know what you're thinking. Did you think you went out to see a reed who was shaken by the wind? I, I know the question sounds like someone who isn't firm, but I'm telling you right now, this is no man to be underestimated. He's no reed blowing in the wind. He is no vacillator, I'm telling you that right now. The very reason he is in prison is because he's the real deal. So don't even let that start to creep into the discussion. My estimate of John is very high. What, do you, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing, they live in luxury and are in the king's courts, not John. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, he was a prophet, but I'm going to tell you this. He was more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face and he will prepare your way before you. He wasn't just a prophet. He was the prophet who prepared the way for the coming of the one. That's what I'm telling you. And after, and, and it's almost like Jesus was saying, don't ever forget how great John was. And, and, and just because he's having a bit of a questioning moment, don't underestimate the the unique qualities of this man. He was affirming John to the crowd who were obviously wondering if Jesus still held him in high esteem. And what we know is that after this, John was put to death. And we know how it happened. We know the details. If you look at Mark 6, we're told this, this is a long piece here, let's look at it together. It says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John, remember I told you King Herod, 
and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, that was his wife, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her, so there was a scandal there. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias <laughs> had a grudge against him, and she wanted him put to death. It's like she wanted John silence, silence this man. He was making a public statement and declaration about the scandal of their marriage. And Herod was bothered. Herodias was offended at a deep level and said, I want this man shut up permanently. Have him killed. Right? But she, but she could not because Herod feared. Look at that, verse 20. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. In other words, Herodias says, I want John put to death. Herod says, I can't do that. I think he's from God. Herod's a bit superstitious and very religious. In his own way, he, 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 doesn't, he, he just wishes John wouldn't say so, some of the things he says, but in the other part of him is compelled and intrigued by John. He recognizes things in John that he thinks are from God. He doesn't want to be responsible for killing him, but at the same time, he can't ignore his wife's request, and also he himself is being affected by it as well. So he comes up with a, uh, an, an idea. I'll, I'll take him out and I'll put him in the prison cell in Macarus. And then, that'll keep him from saying things. And then on top of it, anytime I want to have a religious conversation or something I want to discuss in the scriptures, I can just walk over there and have my own little private time with him. He's like my own private little prophet that I've got locked up. <laughs> that whenever I'm in the mood, <laughs> I'll go find him and we can talk. And then I'll, I'll keep him there. And when I'm interested again, I'll come back again. It's the perfect scenario. She's happy. I'm happy. John, on the other hand, right, he, he, he was in a very difficult situation. We, I think we underestimate how he was withering in that situation, how hard it was for him. I really do. I mean, it was really hard. But we know that something happens. Herod, we're told, you can see it here. It says, but an opportunity came when Herod on his, this verse 21, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So the picture is, he's, he has this huge uh, feast, banquet, party that he's going to set up for the rich and the elite and the powerful of the region. Those are his friends. And it's going to be stuff flowing and it's going to be quite a decadent thing because he was a decadent man. And they're going to let it all happen and hang. And this is what we're giving the picture of. A lot of people coming from a lot of places to have this opportunity to be in this uh, very, very elite gathering. That's also, again, like I said, uh, well, look at verse 22. For when Herodias, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The dance... In the middle of this gathering, they're feasting and they're eating and they're having, you know, I guess laughter and discussions. And you know what happens? They're getting drunk. People are getting, it's a wild kind of environment. And you know how it is when people get inebriated. They, they're, they're, a lot of the pretense comes down. All of a sudden, they're a different person, right? It's wild. That's why the Bible says, if you're going to drink, do so in moderation, and do not be drunk. Be filled with the Spirit, but not with wine wherein there is excess. 
In other words, wash yourself to not do things that you will regret. Um, that was just a little side note I threw in there. <laughs> okay. See, it's true, though, for a follower of the Lord, right? We really. Because what happens is all these uh, social norms. So okay, in our mind's eye, we got it. We read it. We go, oh, yeah, that's like, no, no, no. It's wild. <laughs> and in comes an erotic dancer. Okay, I'm just telling you. Her name was Salome. <laughs> her name was Salome. That was Her Herod's. Herodias' daughter, Salome, comes in. And she dances a dance in front of all these inebriated people. And Herod's also there, and he's watching. And, and, and he, he's it's a kind of a frenzied environment. And he's not, he, he, look what it says he does. It says, he says uh, and the king said to the girl, when she comes in, she pleased Herod and the guests. Oh, they loved it. And, and it says that king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, right? Imagine that moment. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Ah, whatever, whatever you want. I'll give it. I'll give you up to half of my. I promise. I'll give you half of my kingdom. What do you want? What do you want? I need to go ask my mother. <laughs> so she said, watch what happens. And she went out and said to her mother, "Because remember, here's the right the pity. He's made this big display." Right, the moment's happened. She's got them all. They're all, it's all going on. And then Herod says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you in front of everybody. She, says, uh, she runs back to her mother, right? And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? It was the opening that the queen had been looking for. And she said, steely and as cold as ice, I want the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately. Salome runs back in, and she sa it says here that with haste to the king, she runs back in quickly and says, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king, the first reaction of, of even Herod, it, it was not, uh, it was stunned, and then, and then he realized, no, no. And then the next thing, he's looking around, and everybody's looking. Everybody's watching. These are his peers. He had made the big thing. He had made the big statement. He had made the statement. I'll give you anything you want. Just ask for it. He said it in front of everybody. Everybody was, what are you going to do now, King Herod, vacillator in chief? What are you going to do? Uh, uh, he didn't want to kill John, but he made the promise, and it would be humiliating. Fine, fine. And we're told that immediately the king, it's a power of peer pressure, by the way, that the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. Look at that, verse 27. And he went and he beheaded him in the prison. And then they brought his head on a platter and they gave it to the girl. They gave it to Salome. And Salome took the platter and John's head on it and gave it to her mother Herodias. That's John's end. And when his disciples heard it, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. And then look at what Matthew's account adds. Last piece there. It says his disciples came and took the body and they buried it. But they didn't stop there. They went. They felt like they had to do this. As soon as they were done burying John, 
they went and they told Jesus what had happened. And when Jesus heard this, you look at verse 13, you may not, we may not appreciate it, but it is the picture of Jesus emotionally affected. He, he, it says, because he had been ministering, it says, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate, desolate place by himself. He, he, um, he pulls away to process through the loss of John. He feels compelled to get away from everybody and get alone into a desolate place. It emotionally affects him. And we're told that Jesus gets into a boat. And he's been ministering on one side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee really is a big lake, the Lake of Gennesaret. They just call it the Sea of Galilee. It's a pretty good-sized body of water. You can see the other end of it from side to side. It's beautiful, actually. And it's very possible that as Jesus hears this news, he says, I, I, I just need to be alone. Let's go to the other side. Leave this group. I need to get in the boat now. Let's go. And he gets in there, and I don't think anybody's talking. And Jesus is making his way, and the waters, they're beautiful. If you see the, the hues of, this, of the Galilee, it's like um, pastels of light blue and purple and lavender, and, and uh, almost, there's almost a beige feel of the mountains around it. It's just a, it, it, it's a, it's a calming, on a sunny day, the, the sun just dances off the waters. It, it's both calming and melancholy all at once, that sea. And you get the picture of Jesus on a boat, making his way as the waters are rippling through. And he's thinking long thoughts. I, people have thought about, what was he thinking about? Probably, partly about John, no question. That's pretty clear, right? But he's maybe also thinking about also his own path. I mean, John's been beheaded. He's been executed in the prime of his life. Jesus knows that his, that his pathway is going to have the same thing. It won't be the acts of a of an executioner, but it'll be a different kind of an execution, but it will be one. And it won't be nearly as quick. He's doing that, he knows where he's going, but it still doesn't change the fact that in his humanity, it was awful news and it was a loss and it affected Jesus. It really did. And it says that when he went ashore, and Jesus, so you see Jesus, it says in verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages and buy food for the, to buy food for themselves. I, I find this fascinating. I mean, Jesus was affected enough that he felt the need to center himself alone. And of course, what do we see? Do you see it? The crowds pursued him. In fact, what is implied is that the only actual real alone time he gets is, the, is, this, is that little journey across the sea in the boat. Right, that was the only, because what happens, the people realize, the crowds who are just kind of all caught up with Jesus, they realize that if they could get that where he was going, and perhaps the winds were contrary or not strong, they could actually by foot go around the Sea of Galilee on the edges and get to the other side and meet him there, which is exactly what happened. By the time he gets there, and we know this, it's not an exaggeration, there were thousands of people waiting for Jesus as that boat is coming in. So his only alone space was that from one side to the other. And as he's been thinking about things and looking at it, again, reflecting on loss and his own life and John, and it got me thinking about loss. And what I saw here was loss, and that's why our message is overcoming loss. In a way, that's what Jesus' death is, overcoming loss. It's the ultimate overcoming loss that brings the gain. 
right? The cross is the path of life, but that's a whole another truth. But I was reflecting on loss. Stay with me here because I went back and forth on this because I was thinking when you talk about loss, a lot of times people might think, oh, that's only for people who are older in life. Only older people who are older in life experience loss. That's not true. We can experience loss very easily in life. Um, in life, there's all kinds of loss. There's relational loss. We have a relationship. It doesn't go right. We lose it. We, lose it. we can have a loss of health, maybe not as common when we're younger, more common when we're older. We can loss of a job, loss of a career, loss of a, of a dream we had that we were filled with a lot of enthusiasm around, but the reality of life has beaten that dream out of us. We can have those kinds of things happen in our lives in regular ways. We can have a loss of our finances or a loss of other things as well. I mean, the fact of the matter is, loss is everywhere. We're, we're you know, we can have a loss of, 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 our, of our family. I remember when I was just a, a boy, uh, not quite a teenager, and when, when it, it, when my mother and father said they were not going to be together anymore, what, what, that, that was the end of whatever that was supposed to be, right? You, you, I lost, many of you have had that, that lo you lose something. Now, you adapt. It's part of life. We may lose people in our lives. This has happened, I'm sure, to many of us. We lose people who we had loved. We felt like we needed them. It was, they're lost. They died. They're, it's a loss it's to us. All of us ultimately will die. Um, it's inevitable. Wow, Pastor, you're really encouraging us right now. I mean, see. <laughs> because you know why? Our culture doesn't talk about real life. Most of it is fake. It's about curated imagery and images and stories that only show the good and can't deal with the bad. It's why a lot of times what happens is we, we're finding ourselves in an extraordinary place right now where so many people are addicted and in need of medication and um, just to numb the pain, don't know how to handle it, don't know how to process it through. And I'm not, not anti-medication, but I am saying that there's so many people who are addicted to drugs right now. We have an epidemic of suicide. We have just, you would think that in such a prosperous culture, there would be so much more life in it. People can't even talk about real things. If we can't do it in the Lord's house, I mean, this is the place to talk about why we exist, the purpose of life, the meaning of things, how to cope with and walk through and deal with hard things that hit us, the reality of life, death, life, real issues, things that are important, working for relationships to prevail. And you know what? Anybody who follows the Lord long, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this up. This is, I know some of us take notes. Um, I'm a note taker. Anytime I listen to a message, I take notes. I just part of my commitment to the ritual of learning. But here's something I want to put up there. I, want to, I think one of the things that Jesus is teaching us, because to be good at life, listen to me, we're going to have to be able to deal with loss. And to prevail as a follower of Jesus, I mean as a healthy follower of the Lord, we're going to need to have a framework for dealing with loss because we're going to be hit with it from time to time. And what do we do about that? I'm suggesting that Jesus gives us a model. And in the few minutes that we have left, I want to look at his model and use it for something you to draw from when you need it, when we need it. Here's the first thing I want to put up there is that we need to be honest 
you can see it with G. We need to be honest about the impact of loss when it happens, right? It, we all experience it differently, and, 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 but loss is a reality on this side of glory, and it affects all of us. It's part of the human story. I know that's, it's part of the human story. We will, if you really think about it, in even the very beginning in the book of Genesis, it's about loss, but then it's also about God's recovery in that loss. The whole message of Christ is about recovering that which was lost. But loss is everywhere. The human experience begins with loss. And the pronouncement out of that experience is that there will be, there will be loss. And apart from God, we are lost. Right? It's about that. And, and there are times in our own life. You know, Jesus was affected by John's death. I need to, get, I need to be alone. I need to be alone. I, can't, I need to pull back. We know that later on he will lose a friend. His name is Lazarus. You read about it in John 11. He dies. Jesus is so affected by the loss of his friend that he cries. He weeps. It's the shortest, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. John 11:35. Jesus wept. What was that weeping over? The loss of a friend in his humanity. He felt that pain, right? He wept. I think we all get affected by loss. Sometimes loss can send us into um, a nosedive, right? And sometimes, if it's unaddressed, that loss can send us into a place of deep discouragement. Sometimes loss can send us, send us into a, a depression as well if it's not addressed. We just, look, we need to acknowledge loss, not ignore it, not deny it. If Jesus took time to pause, so should we. Because listen, he, he was the most whole human being to walk the earth and he took time to be with loss. So if the most whole human being who ever walked on earth paused in his humanity to take time to be with loss, it's okay and the right thing for us to do it as well. Secondly, notice the necessity of solitude as a key for processing through the losses of life as a way of pulling out and positioning, stilling and quieting the soul, finding, okay, here's a word. This word isn't used that much in this generation. In fact, it hasn't been used for a number of generations, but in past generations, the word that I'm referring to was used frequently as a way of describing what it means to have settledness of soul. And that, that word is equanimity. And equanimity had to do with the idea of evenness of mind, especially under stress. Or a way of, another way of saying it is dispositional balance, right, under duress. Dispositional balance under duress. And centering our thoughts on the Father's plan, right? This is a key. Now, Jesus took time to cross the sea, created space. That's what he did. He, he created space, right? And in his case, it had to do with just being on that sea was a sort of a, there was a kind of a therapeutic effect to it. And I thought, you know, there are times where when we're under, under places like this, we just need to create space, uh, take a prayer walk, um, a, a long ride maybe. You know, we live in such a beautiful city. We can, we just, it's a hop, skip, and a jump to the ocean. You look out the ocean, think long thoughts as long as that ocean on the horizon. You know, take a walk. Golden Gate Park, be alone in your thoughts. Um, we have a lake. 
Lake Merced. It's, I mean, it's not big like the big lake, but it's a little one. But you can, see, you can walk around it. I don't know. We, can do, we have so many things. Someone's like, oh, we live in the city. I know. You know, for me, I got up real early in the morning. And I was thinking about this message and creating space and being alone. But, you know, I was up early and the streets were empty. And there was a unique beauty in the city, walking through the streets. Um, you know, you got to be smart, obviously, you know, where you walk. But there is a kind of beauty to being alone with God. Some of us have a garden place. We could have places where you can go to to think long thoughts, to grieve loss, to be alone. I, I think there was something about nature, too, because God's artistry, God's creative work, it, something about the way the nature is set up that um, even Jesus himself on those waters, those melancholy waters of the Galilee, there's that, that healing kind of, right? There was, it was, like a, uh, there was almost like a therapeutic component to just being out on the water. We, in loss, we need those spaces to sit with God. But then the last thing to notice is this. Don't underestimate the power of focused engagement and compassion as a way of moving forward. Now, it's said a little differently up there, but you get the idea. The I, okay. Don't rush past this. John was a focused man, a truly great man, a man of tremendous intensity and vigor. And he was all in for God. Jesus was also all in, but in a different way, wasn't he? He was, as Mark's gospel presents him, like a tireless servant. I mean, each of the gospels presents Jesus in a slightly different angle of light, right? It shows different aspects of his ministry and personality. Mark's gospel presents Jesus as the tireless worker, the ultimate servant, the giver, who's always seeking to help and strengthen people, right? Creates space for them. And John preached and proclaimed that was what he did outside of culture. Jesus inside of Jesus engaged people. He he moved among them. He he taught them and he healed them and he and he served them. When Jesus gets off the boat, he was greeted with a crowd of people. He had a decision to make. He, him still grieving the loss of John. He's on his way to a desolate place, but when he gets to the shore, there's a multitude of people waiting for him. He has a decision to make. Do I say, this isn't the time? Or does he engage them? I think you, do you know what ends up happening? One of the greatest recorded miracles of Jesus occurs right in that moment. What follows, and we didn't read it, is the feeding of the 5,000. That is where Jesus, he organizes the people in rows, and then he feeds them in a miraculous way. Out of that, think about this. He, he decided to minister to them. In, in his loss, he gave. In his loss, he gave. And that is the principle. There is a power in it. Right? In so doing, he models for us that part of being all in for the Lord involves being, being there for others. Yes, it's, it's an engaging faith. It's not an isolated one. But it's also a way of overcoming loss. It's a hugely important way of overcoming coming loss. Do we see it? He shows us the value of solitude and service, of uh, alone time and giving time, of processing and pushing on. There is a time to give. I just want to, because what's the tendency? when we feel like we're losing, is to shrink and start to define our world by our loss. And what I think Jesus models is, there's a time to, to be alone, yes, but there's also a time to give and serve as a way of breaking out of that. 
Otherwise, it starts to define us. So God, he shows us the example of how to do it. How good is that? The model. And it's one of the reasons why we are trying to encourage everybody to think about what it means to serve others by inviting, by giving, by sharing. You know, that's what the whole purpose of, of come and see and rise and shine, right? All those things are designed to create ways of serving others, to sharing our heart with them. But this is the example of the Lord. Okay, I'm going to pray. We'll have our clothes here. But let me, let, me just, let me just pray into this word for all of us. And Lord, as a model for, um, you know, before we have our time of giving here, Lord, as a model for how to negotiate uh, the losses of life, um, the disappointments that sometimes surface in our lives uh, or that have been a part of our life in the past, that you invite us not to deny them, but at the same time not to let them define us. And that part of the way is having space for you. And then also being open to being a giving and a serving person who is focused on others, just like you modeled. That when we do this, life flows. The dimensions of loss are broken as life begins to move through us. There's something about the principle and what you taught us that we really need to hear and consider. So I just pray for uh, these closing minutes that we're sharing in song that you would just speak to our hearts about what it means to be a people who are healthier and more whole and more capable of dealing with the things that inevitably will confront us because we live in a broken world and there's a lot of disappointment and pain in it, but you're able to teach us how to overcome these things and how to prevail. And I ask that your wisdom would flow and I thank you for it, Lord. I thank you for the coming weeks. Change people's lives forever. Bring good into the broken and lost places. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.